0: Bible Worm, Bible Worm, reading the Bible with
1: Bible Worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and theologian in residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock, Arkansas.
2: And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning and Music at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish, one Christian.
1: This week, we're reading a selection of texts about David's praise of God in 2 Samuel 5, 1-5 and 6, 1-15, as well as Psalm 150. We talk about what it means for everything that has breath to praise the Lord and ponder the unification of all creatures that is possible when we recognize the breath within us that wishes to return to God in praise. We also pay attention to the way David approaches praise, sometimes as a genuine reverence for God, but sometimes as an apparent manipulation that seeks to co-opt God into his own political and military agenda. And we discuss the story of poor Uzzah, who is struck dead for trying to steady the Ark of the Covenant, concluding that God does not need to be protected and will not tolerate being treated carelessly. When we come into God's presence with praise, we do something that is dangerous and powerful and that can bring us extraordinary blessing. Thanks for joining us. Hey Amy, how are you this week?
2: I'm alright, I'm still kicking.
1: (laughs) That's all you can ask. Fall is how a busy time. Fall's a busy time for the Jews. Y'all have been, y'all have been through a lot. In We've the last been few through weeks. some stuff. Yeah. yeah,
2: we have. I feel like you know how they tell you you don't have an iPhone, right?
1: You no, know, I'm an Android. And a phones? PC. Yeah. I know.
2: Okay. So They tell you with an iPhone, you're supposed to run the battery all the way down because it's good for the battery. And of course, I never do this because it makes me so anxious. I plug it in whenever I can. Sure. But I feel like the fall season on the Jewish calendar like, is like (laughs) you run your battery all the way down like almost every day. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And then it recharges. (laughs) And then just hope
2: that it will recharge. And it mostly feels good. And some days it doesn't totally recharge. And you're like, oh, wow. That's a like... Spiritual tired, physical tired, emotional tired, yeah. all the tired. And yeah. then I have to go grocery shopping. <laughs> yeah. But it's good.
1: Yeah. Amy, I was leading the, uh, the Bible study. So at Canvas Community, you know, where I teach on Sunday nights and our community is homeless. And so we were doing the narrative lectionary. Uh, we decided to do the narrative lectionary this time. And so it's kind of fun mm-hmm. because then I get to talk about that is cool. the text. So I talk about it with you and then I get to talk about it like two weeks later or whatever it is Yeah. with the Canvas community. So it's really nice. But the other, the other night I was talking about uh, one of the texts and like I was, you know, so we do this conversational Bible study. It's a lot like what you and I do on Bible Worm, except it's like, I don't know, 10 or 15 people, many mm-hmm. of whom are homeless. And so we're, we're talking about the text. And then I said something and this guy just starts clapping <laughs> I was like, I think he's, I think he's clapping me off. <laughs> I think he's just like, hey, what well, has been? Like, and we were like, like, like Is this 30 minutes right now, in, he and he's just talking. like, yeah. Like, it wasn't at a moment where it was like I had said something particularly
2: uh-huh,
1: inspiring. Uh-huh. He was just like, yes. And I was like, wouldn't that be? If our Bible worm audience could just clap us off at any moment, you know. I know, then, like,
2: know like the like back the orchestra starts playing, yeah, like, that's exactly what it is. Like dead. the little hook came
1: out and the orchestra's playing. <laughs> it's like doop, doop. Doo, doo. So I was just like, thank you. <laughs> it was the funniest that's funniest amazing. experience. I'm glad the Bible worm audience does not have that. I guess they could like just fast forward through us. The nice thing is we don't ever I know, know. But we
2: don't know. We
1: yeah. do not we know. Just
2: blissfully keep talking and they don't have to listen.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Anyhow. All right. Amy, today we are in, ah, uh, this is sort of a weird set of texts. I just got to say it. I'm just going to say it. I'm going to name it. It's sort of a weird mm. set of texts in the narrative lectionary. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, chapter 6, verses 1 to 5, and then Psalm 150. When we talked about this text with the Bible Worm Collaborative a little while ago, they really wanted to talk about, like all they really wanted to talk about was Second Samuel six six to fifteen, and so which is actually a really interesting little story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna do five one to five six one to one to fifteen, and then Psalm one fifty. That sound alright?
2: Yeah, yeah, it does. And we might have to go a little quicker on some of those other texts to do all that.
1: We might. I don't know. <laughs> it's just kind of a normal. It's just like yeah. You know, anyway. Yeah. So last time we were in the book of Ruth, we ended. The conversation Mm. with the, or the text anyway, with the birth of David. Mm. Now we are uh, in the Christian canon. We are a book down the road in second Samuel. Uh, Mm. The Jewish canon has Ruth kind of off in its own little place in the writings. And so totally disconnected from all of these things. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if you just think about, let's frame it this way. Last time we were at the sometime in the period of the judges. Yes. Foreshadowing the birth of David. Now we're in 2nd Samuel chapter 5. What what do we need to know to get us from we need there to, to here? You,
2: that's how that's how I'm thinking about the connection. As you said, it's it, it's hard for my like Jewish brain to wrap around going from Ruth to 2nd Samuel because Ruth is like way later in the canon mm-hmm. and in a different body of literature yeah. than 2nd Samuel. But yes, the setting of the story is in the time of the judges. So this was this The setting of the story of Ruth is in the time of the judges, which are sort of more like localized sources of power, not like anointed kings or more just sort of charismatic individuals who would pop up and mostly were were good military leaders when they were needed. But there wasn't this sort of centralized leadership that you would see in a king. Over the course of time, it becomes very clear that this is not working well, like society is kind of falling apart. Humans are all doing what is right in their own eyes. And it's bad. Bad things are happening. So the next big question is, the people for a while have kind of wanted a king. God has really held on to this model that like, no, God is the king. God is your king. Orient yourself towards God. Forget about human power in that way. The people just can't do it. Mm. They can't do it. And so finally God says, fine, have a king.
1: In <laughs> exactly that tone of voice, too, I think. Fine. Yeah, that was like one Samuel. I mean, yeah, with like
2: a it. big eye roll. Yeah. Yes, fine. 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 Have a king.
1: Okay.
2: And 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 the the sort of judge or prophet or leader at that time, Samuel, after whom this book is named, is very distressed about this. But God says, let it go. The people need this, just do it. So they anoint a king that is chosen by God. God chooses a king. And the first king is not David. Right. But is this other guy, Saul. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to tell you the whole story of Saul. But suffice it to say that it's good for a while. Over time, he seems to become more oriented towards the, the things that a king is oriented towards. Sort of like strategic. strategically, how do you maintain stability for the kingdom? And that's not what God wants. God wants the king to be oriented only towards what God wants. right. So the kingship is taken away from Saul. and then there's this incredibly awkward and tragic, <laughs> I think, yeah. period of time, Yes, where God has taken the kingship from Saul. Like Saul doesn't have God's backing anymore. And in fact, there's already been the selection of David, right as as the new king. But publicly, politically, Saul is still king. Yeah. And he's just losing all over the place yeah. and he's losing his godforsaken mind. Like he he really loses his mind. <laughs> yeah. And eventually <laughs> Saul dies not at the hand of David. David is very careful not to get too mixed up in that. Yeah. And our story then then picks up when when David is being anointed by the people. Like the people are ready to recognize David. Yeah as the king. Yeah. There's so much in there I did not say, Bobby, because there's so much that a person can say. Do we need, do you need to say more about characteristics of David or what else feels important to you?
1: I mean, I think the thing I would pick up there, I really, that was a great description of where we are. The thing that I want to pick up, I think, is you said at the very beginning that there were these charismatic leaders, the judges, who would arise and unite the people for for a time and then would sort of disappear and that's sort of like just remembering that Israel at this point is 12 tribes who mm-hmm. have come together and they are, for a time, not entirely a coherent body, right? There's always these sort of internal divisions and struggles about who belongs to whom and are we really part of the same people or are we not. Mm-hmm. One of the things that happens when Saul dies then is his uh, relative Ishbosheth, Ishbaal becomes the king in the north and David is the king in the south. And so for a minute we have these sort of tribal rearrangements where mm-hmm. the one kingdom of Saul splits into two kingdoms and then Ishbosheth's general is killed and then Ishbosheth is murdered and then then the people come and say, okay, in this text, okay you can be our king too. And so one of the that dynamics in this text that I think is important is that David is trying to establish, his own authority over all the people, mm-hmm. even though there is a sort of internal divide between really between north and south, between Saul people and David people. David has been the king in Hebron in the south. Saul has been the king. I don't remember where he was the king, actually, now that I'm saying it out loud, but he was the king in the north.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: uh, and so there's this tension that David's got to resolve somehow. Once David unites the kingdom, as you know, it stays together for two generations. And then Mm -hmm. his grandson, Rehoboam, the kingdom splits again. And so it's a very tense sort of uniting people who are internally divided. And that, I think, is, at least from my reading of this text, is a pretty important dynamic. Yes. Okay, so what we pick up with in 2 Samuel chapter 5 is when the northern tribes come to David and decide that they want to submit to him as their king. So we're in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, and I'm reading in the Common English Bible. All the Israelite tribes came to David at Hebron and said, Listen, we are your very own flesh and bone. In the past, when Saul ruled over us, you were the one who led Israel out to war and back. What's more, the Lord told you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be Israel's leader. So all the Israelite leaders came to the king at Hebron. King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he ruled for 40 years. He ruled over Judah for seven and a half years in Hebron. He ruled 33 years over all Israel and Judah in Jerusalem. Mm. Okay, Amy, so I'm, just in, I'm curious about what you think this dynamic might be where the northern tribes are coming and saying, I don't know, it's so so reconciling, or I don't quite know how to read the tone. We're your flesh and bone, and we know you have this promise, so now we submit to you. How do you read them and their approach to David here?
2: You know, I I don't know. Like, it seems... (laughs) It's almost like, well, we tried the other way already, and, (laughs) you know, like... (laughs) Yeah. Like this... uh, they come with these words that are so, they feel so sort of heartfelt if you haven't just read the stuff that came before it. Right. Like we yeah. already tried our own system yeah. and that didn't work. So, so maybe it, but honestly, maybe that's some, maybe sometimes that's just how it happens. You know, like you don't know, you don't know the thing until you try the other thing. Yeah. Okay, fine. So we didn't guess right the first time. Um... But I can't tell if they're like really sincerely bought in or just don't feel like they have any other options Yeah. or maybe like open to the possibility that that this is for real. I don't know. It's It's hard for me to read them as like totally bought into David all of a sudden because so recently they
1: weren't. Yeah, that's kind of the way that I read it too. I think that's a really interesting way to approach it. Is there options? Like, they don't really have any options left.
2: They don't have any options.
1: Abner has died. He was the great military leader. ish who was the king in the north, has died. He's been murdered. And so they don't have any other place to go. And mm-hmm. so they come to David. And, you know, I think it's possible to read them as sort of defeated and mm-hmm. also maybe sincere or trying mm-hmm. to sort of accept, like, they're, they're giving the sort of, the correct line, right? You were the military leader who actually was the power when Saul was even the king. And we know what God has told you about you being the shepherd. And so they're acknowledging the story that underlies the whole Davidic promise. I guess they're talking about when Samuel anointed David as a boy in 1 Samuel 16. So yeah, I read it that I think I read it the way you do, is sort of a reluctant acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. That the unification of the people under David's leadership is what's left. Like that's the
2: right. this that's is happening. the option. It's get on board.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, it actually it reminds me a little bit more of like the way that I think of political elections now. It's sort of like there's not a candidate ever who I'm like, this yeah. candidate's gonna save the world. Yeah. It's just who's gonna who what's the best option right now? you know, for for what I think needs to happen in the world. And we have to remember, too, that their experience of a king, their experience of kings has not been the way that we think about David and this eternal covenant yeah, yeah, and, yeah. like, you know, Moshiach and all that stuff. They had Saul, and then they had these, like, this very unstable period yeah. after Saul. And Saul wasn't, you know, things didn't end well with that. So maybe they're thinking of a little more, like, I think, of elections.
1: I think that's really insightful, Amy. And, you know, when you think about divisions among the people, like, that's where my head goes, too, is, like, there are, like, lots of divisions in our world right now, especially here where we are in the U.S. And this kind of, like, reluctant submission to other people's leadership is sort of the way way that it goes. Like, I -hmm. do that and other people do that. And so this text, I think, is kind of interesting in that way. Watching the way David kind of works with that, and what yes. he does with that to me is really is really interesting.
2: He's pretty masterful in that. You were
1: mentioning yeah. the um, the eternal covenant. It's just probably worth saying that that that's going to happen in 2nd Samuel 7. So mm-hmm. where we are, that has not yet been articulated to David yet. And so we're sort of in the we've got the like God anointed David king when he was a kid, but we don't mm-hmm. yet have the confirmation of that in in the eternal covenant.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Speaking of covenant, this the text says David made a covenant with them before the Lord. I'm just, I mean, that word covenant covers a lot of territory, but it seems important here. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about covenant and maybe what that might mean here?
2: What a good question, Bobby. You know, I think so often in the biblical text of covenants between people and God. But of course that whole model is sort of built on the covenants that existed between humans. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm thinking of a covenant. It's funny that this doesn't actually articulate anything that might've been specified in that covenant. Maybe there wasn't anything specified in the covenant. Maybe it's just, (laughs) you will be, I mean, there must've been something though. Yeah. Right. I, I mean, it's, it's, Okay, here's just a simple-minded answer. Like this is a sacred agreement between them that is mutual and yeah. and binding on both parties. And I don't know the details of it.
1: Yeah, the details are not given to us here. The text does not seem to care about mm-hmm. the details. To me that what you're saying about covenant being at some level mutual and reciprocal and sacred. It doesn't mean equal. Right. And so like, I kind of read this that way, that David is, David is not just sort of forcing them under his thumb, but he's acknowledging like, you have come to me as your king. And so I have some responsibilities for you and they have committed to him.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. It's not just that they have submitted to David's rule. It's that they have reached some kind of common agreement Mm -hmm. for the well-being of the whole or something Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm jumping around a little bit, but when they first speak to him, they refer to him as our, uh, we are your very own flesh and bone. Mm
0: -hmm. Do you have
1: a sense of what, I mean, it reminds me, we were just reading Genesis 2 earlier this fall and that's what the human said Mm -hmm. of the woman, this at last, this is bone in my bone and flesh in my flesh. So that just that wording stood out to me when they said it here. Do you have thoughts about what they're claiming?
2: What feels so powerful about that Articulation to me is precisely what you sort of filled in in the introductory notes, which is that Israel did not the people Israel, the tribes of Israel as a whole did not see themselves as a monolith. And while certainly there were, um, you know, sacred stories of descending all from Jacob, and and then the sons of Jacob they really had had somewhat different identities especially the northern tribes versus the yeah. southern tribes the tribes of israel versus the tribes of judah so i feel like coming to david and saying we are your own flesh and blood yeah is almost speaking against the way that i imagine they have been functioning mm-hmm. as a as a group is to say like we need to go back to this understanding yeah. we need to you need to see us as your flesh and blood, yep. and we need to see you as our flesh yes. and blood. And this is the only way that we're going to be able to move forward. Because I don't think it's at all obvious that they would they would see that in each other.
1: I think that's right. That's so well said, Amy. Because just before this, they were like House of Saul people versus mm-hmm. House of David people. And they were the Northern people versus the Southern people. So to start that by saying... We are. We belong to each other. That's exactly. Oh, I it. love
2: that articulation. Mm. We belong to each other. Yeah.
1: I don't quite know how to talk about this last little bit, but we get the notice that David's rule is for seven and a half years in Hebron, 33 years in Jerusalem. The Hebron mm-hmm. part, he's ruling over Judah. Jerusalem part, he's ruling over Judah and Israel. Mm -hmm. I just, that shift of capital Mm -hmm. seems important. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah. I mean, this, the shift to Jerusalem is really part of David's genius as a, as a king. It's, it's sort of, it's like the Washington DC. Like it's an, it's an area that is not at that time. It is not part of the North and it is not part of the South. It is sort of in between and is, is a place where by choosing that place as the sort of headquarters for his kingship he is really making a statement about being king over the whole people yeah. and not a Judahite king yeah. who is king over everybody it was it was a brilliant move
1: yeah so what you're saying is had he left his capital in Hebron then it mm-hmm. would have been like absorbing the northern tribes into his southern kingdom Yes. By moving to Jerusalem, which, I mean, we get the story of the capture of Jerusalem from the Canaanites in the next bit. And mm-hmm. like verse six of chapter five is that story. So it's not even a Israelite city. It's still a Canaanite city. Right. right. David right. has to conquer it to move the capital there. And so this is our new capital as a collective, mm-hmm.
0: not my
1: capital in Hebron. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. I, I really love that. But thinking about the way that David is, you know, He's making a covenant. He's moving his capital. He's, I don't know if you think, i like you can think of him as as a strategic guy. I mean, he is a strategic guy. You could also think of David as trying to create a space of welcome or something like that. Like do symbolic things. Like you can read him as being like politically shrewd.
2: Yes. Or you can
1: read him as being like culturally generous. Yes. Maybe both of those things go together. I don't know.
2: Yes. No, I think that's exactly right. Okay, Bobby, tell me one thing you were doing when you were 30 besides being king.
1: Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> I was so far from being king when I was 30. I was, in, I was actually studying in Oxford at the time, mm-hmm. and it was dark a lot. <laughs> That's what I remember about Oxford. When it wasn't okay. dark, it was raining. Yeah.
2: It was either dark or raining, and mm-hmm. you were studying in Oxford. I was Good. a grad
1: student. Mm-hmm. What, were, what about you? When you were 30, you were...
2: I was a I was a grad student in uh, at Emory. I had a newborn and a two year old, so I was probably on fire the entire year. <laughs> yeah. It was also it was also dark many of the hours that I was awake
1: <laughs> <laughs> for entirely different reasons. Yeah, yeah. that's funny. No, okay, I read sorry. like these texts. <laughs> like I do that. Like I mean, I, it, when I was younger, it was like more. I don't know, inspiring to be like, look what Mm -hmm. that person did by the time they were 30. Like, maybe I could do that. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, that guy did that by the time he was 30? Like, what have I been doing with my life? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. I will say, David, uh, that guy has some issues in his family. Yes. (laughs) Like, would I trade in being a king for, like, all the crap that David's family has to put up? I I would not.
2: I do not want to be David.
0: No, no. Hi, my name is John Weicker and I am the associate pastor for youth and their families at First Presbyterian Church of Durham, North Carolina. I am a Bibleworm supporter at the Bibleworm supporter level, $48 per year. And I do that not because we're on the narrative lectionary or even because I preach that often, although when I do preach and the texts line up, I certainly use the podcast. I actually use Bible Worm as my own personal devotion for the week. I'm someone who misses the deep theology and close reading of texts that I got to do a lot of in seminary. And in Bobby and Amy's work, I found that again. And so I listen on Monday mornings on my way over to church and then Monday afternoons on the way back as a way to prepare for the week, to do ministry, and to love Jesus and serve I hope you'll join me in becoming a Bible Worm supporter too. And now back to this week's episode.
1: All right, Amy. So moving on to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Are you ready to make that move?
2: I'm ready.
1: Okay. So the first part I'm going to read is the part that is actually part of the narrative lectionary, which is verses 1 to 5. Before we start, we should just say that David has now moved his capital, he's captured Jerusalem and he is in the process of moving his capital to Jerusalem is what he's doing. Mm. Once again, David assembled the select warriors of Israel, 30,000 strong. David and all the troops who were with him set out for Baala, which is Kiryath Jarim of Judah, to bring God's chest up from there. The chest that is called by the name of the Lord of heavenly forces, who sits enthroned on the winged creatures. They loaded God's chest on a new cart and carried it from Abinadab's house, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, Abinadab's sons, were driving the new cart. Uzzah was beside God's chest while Ahio was walking in front of it. Meanwhile, David and the entire house of Israel celebrated in the Lord's presence with all their strength, with songs, zithers, harps, tambourines, rattles, and cymbals. Mm. Okay, there's kind of a lot of detail in this little bit of text, but... The thing that is clearly the point is what the CEB is calling the chest of God. (laughs) Which I do not love that translation.
2: My translation is the Ark of God. Yeah. I mean, I think they're getting to like, you know, it's 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 like a like a trunk, like those little things you bring to summer camp. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah.
1: I think that's right. Can you just talk a little bit about the Ark and what what it is and what it signifies?
2: Yeah, I mean, so the, the Ark in, in, is in the, the holiest space within the tabernacle or later in the temple. And it is in the Holy of Holies and it's covered in gold and it's like marked as this incredibly sacred object. Mm. It has on the sides of it two cherubim who sort of face each other and then there's a space in the middle of it where I've been taught that maybe in some other religion, in some other traditions, there would be a depiction of the deity there. And there is not a depiction of God. And it's almost sort of like the, the enthronement of the invisible deity. There is a tradition that the tablets that the tablets with the 10 commandments on them are inside the Ark, But I don't think that is, I think some biblical authors think that's true and some don't, but, in any case
1: one of the traditions has the tablets and some manna and Aaron's mm-hmm. staff that blossomed giving him priestly authority wow and i think in the other tradition it's just empty
2: it's just empty i feel like the tradition that i sort of know in my in my heart the tradition that i is my go to is that it's empty yeah but yes there are different traditions about that
1: so when this describes God as Lord of heavenly forces who sits enthroned on the winged creatures, like there's a sense in which that is quite literal, that there's these cherubim on the ark itself mm-hmm. and that God is understood to be kind of riding along.
2: Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I feel like the the text is is sort of intentionally a little fuzzy on this point. Like they wouldn't necessarily, they wouldn't say like, God is currently physically located there and nowhere else. But there is a sense, at least in in the priestly texts, and I think other texts, that like the holiness of God can be particularly concentrated mm. in certain areas. And it would be particularly concentrated there. But they're also very cautious not to sort of delimit the boundaries of God. Yes. So it's it's a little a little fuzzy. So God is like
1: highly concentrated on yeah. the ark, but like also is elsewhere or something like mm-hmm.
2: that. Yeah, it's like that like the powder you use to make Tang. No,
1: it's not <laughs> like that. <laughs> oh, I love it. But you tang. shouldn't you
2: shouldn't mm. have just the powder by itself. It's like really strong. Oh no,
1: I loved eating the powder. <laughs> <laughs> so good the holy no, no. tang yeah when i was a kid tang was so cool because it was like what the astronauts carried with them i was like okay. oh yeah i was so if you want to be an astronaut that's what you would drink if you wanted yeah. to be like a super astronaut you just ate the powder
2: that's right it's like dra- astronaut ice cream is dried up you just yeah the tang. oh
1: astronaut ice cream yeah that stuff is terrible yeah. but it, like the concept of it it's amazing special yeah, yeah. There used to be this bubble gum called Big League Chew, which is same thing. It was back in the day when, in the like, in baseball, people always chew tobacco. Oh, my
2: God, I so remember that. it came
1: that. in, like, a little tobacco pouch, but it was, like, shredded up bubble gum. It was just bubble gum, but you could, like, wad it up in your – I a remember that, and, and I gum. was so
2: naive. I didn't understand the reference to tobacco at all. I thought yeah. it was just shredded up. I had never seen anyone chew tobacco. I still didn't until we were in graduate school, and my <laughs> yeah, 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 beloved professor would – would be spitting during class
1: spitting tobacco during class oh john hayes i miss i miss that man Mm
2: -hmm.
1: all right amy so i mean what is happening then in a sense is that they're carrying god yeah to jerusalem yeah they're carrying the ark but the ark is like they're
2: carrying the ark but the ark is the closest thing they have as like an emblem of the most holy holiness of God. And the other thing I'll say is that when they when they when they first make create the ark in the book of Exodus, there are very elaborate instructions about how it is to be moved. Yeah. And it has to be wrapped in layers of specific things and carried only by specific tribes um in order to, for humans to be able to interact safely with that kind of
1: holiness. Okay. So we're going to get in a minute to that unsafe <laughs> uh, carrying of the ark, but safety issues. First, I want to just ask a couple things about the mode of their carrying.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: One is he's got 30,000 warriors. So this is like a military processional mm-hmm. and it describes God as Lord of heavenly forces, which sometimes is translated as Lord of heavenly hosts. Mm-hmm. But it, that's mm-hmm. really talking about the Angelic army, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, yes, that is that is how I read it, and I think it's it's again one of those things that it's sort of like the God in heaven and the God on and and the King on earth. There's there's like this mirroring yeah. of it in some way.
1: So the one thing here is about military power. David mm-hmm. has military power, thirty thousand strong, that is sort of undergirded by God's military power, the forces of heaven. Is that how how you're reading that? I mean,
2: I think so. There are a lot of places in the biblical text that imagine God is like a military hero. Yeah. And I don't love those, but God is a God of might, of military might, heavenly military might, and the ability to enact that on earth.
1: So if if you're David and you're trying to like consolidate your kingdom to say like, look, I've got these 30,000 warriors and God, the Lord of heavenly armies, like there is a This is a display of Mm -hmm. power on the one hand. Mm -hmm. You don't want to mess Mm -hmm. with David because Mm -hmm. David has this army and also God's army on his side. And he's demonstrated that with, with the carrying of of this ark. Mm. It is also interesting though, that what's accompanying this military processional is a sort of elaborate praise accompanied by songs and all these different Mm -hmm. instruments, including a zither, which I don't hundred percent know what a zither is. Do you know what a zither is? (laughs) Uh,
2: No. My translation doesn't even have zither.
1: Oh, what comes after songs?
2: Mine doesn't have songs either. (laughs) Mine has the sound of all kinds of cypress wood instruments with lyres, harps, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals.
1: Oh, it turns out uh, zither is another word for a lyre, as it turns out.
2: They're making a joyful noise. They are making a joyful noise with
1: many instruments that were appropriate unto the time period.
2: Yes, Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Whatever they got. So I'm just, like, this sort of, like, this image of the people marching along with the 30,000 warriors and the Ark of God, and what they're doing is singing and playing loud music on their, I don't know. On the one hand, it's just this sort of, like, I mean, it just feels really big and loud and boisterous. Yeah, all the big. I mean, I don't really know what the question is, but when you're when you're envisioning that processional, what like what do you think about it?
2: You know, until you had really sort of put some emphasis on the fact that he's got quite a lot of soldiers with him, <laughs> I think I read it just as this sort of like raucous uh, celebratory processional. But now it sounds a little more like a military parade of some kind. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's like somewhere in between it's like a military parade, but the music I think theoretically is is really directed at God, not yeah. the human king. Yeah. But there is there is a blurring of yes. human king and God here.
1: There is. I almost didn't point out the 30,000 warriors because it kind of ruins this text for me. (laughs) But I mean, it's there. Like, I think it's kind of the point of this text. But yeah, Yeah. it's definitely blurring some boundaries and praising God and also reinforcing the power of the king. Mm -hmm. Amy, they have gone to uh, kiriath e in Judah to get the Ark from the house of Abinadab. Why is the Ark at the house of Abinadab?
2: Yeah, so, okay, back in 1 Samuel, there's they seem to still be sort of discovering the power of this ark. King Saul is reigning, and the Philistines, enemies of Israel, capture the ark, which was like a big military thing. It, like, captured the flag, but, like, a lot bigger than that. <laughs> <laughs> and so the Philistines have the ark, and they're delighted with themselves, but...
1: I mean, then they captured bunch- the God of Israel in, in some I, sense. I,
2: I mean... I just don't think of the Ark as God. I can't, I can't, I understand what you're saying, but in it, it they are not supposed to have the Ark. <laughs>
0: <And> <laughs> God not does not want to be
2: in Philistine territory. Yeah. So a bunch of plagues come upon the people and then it becomes sort of like hot potato, like no one wants the Ark because they realize that it has power and, yeah. and bad things happen to you if it's in a place where it shouldn't yeah. be. Um, keeps and giving so people fun.
1: hemorrhoids and stuff like that.
2: Oh, the golden hemorrhoids! Yeah. yeah, it's. I mean, it's. They're trying to find a place to put. So the Philistines don't want the ark anymore. They, I think, they bring it back.
1: It and sort of and it drives then, itself home. Yeah. They're just like they attach it to some cows, and they're like, okay, if it goes that's home, that's right. God, and if it's not, then it's just like random stuff happening, and it goes like roop, run. It, the ark runs back to
2: the ark. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the ark runs <laughs> back home, and eventually winds up in the house of Abinadab who is one of the sons of King Saul who is willing to house it there and there it does not cause any trouble for his household it's yeah. a good thing yeah. and that's a sign that that's where the ark would like to be thank
1: you yeah. very much <laughs> yeah. the people at Beth Shemesh like opened it up and like looked inside of it i think and they got struck down and said so they, they got struck to- yeah. Th- yeah you you
2: can't play with this thing do
1: not play <laughs> with the ark yeah Also in Raiders of the Lost Ark, like that thing will melt your freaking face.
2: It will melt
1: your face. (laughs) Don't mess with us. All right. So uh, picking up then in verse six. When they approached Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah reached out to God's chest and grabbed it because the oxen had stumbled. The Lord became angry at Uzzah and God struck him there because of his mistake. And he died there next to God's chest. Then David got angry because the Lord's anger lashed out against Uzzah. And so that place is called Perez Uzzah today. David was frightened by the Lord that day. How will I ever bring the Lord's chest to me? He asked. So David didn't take the chest away with him to David's city. Instead, he had it put in the house of Obed-Edom, who was from Gath. The Lord's chest stayed with Obed-Edom's household in Gath for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom's household and all that he had. King David was told, The Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's family and everything he has because of God's chest being there. So David went and brought God's chest up from Obed-Edom's house to David's city with celebration. Whenever those bearing the chest advanced six steps, David sacrificed an ox and a fatling calf. David, dressed in a linen priestly vest, danced with all his strength before the Lord. This is how David and the entire house of Israel brought up the Lord's chest with shouts and trumpet blasts. Mm. All right, Amy. Talk to me about poor Uza.
2: Poor Uza. This is what I picture happening. They have the ark. It says on a cart. So, like, I mean, I think the last time we talked about this, I've said I pictured in like a wheelbarrow. Like, it, <laughs> this is not the way you're supposed to move
1: the ark. Uh, yeah.
2: And it it seems as though it's going to stumble. And so Uza, I don't know, maybe absentmindedly, maybe not absentmindedly. Like you know, you put out your hands to prevent a cherished thing from falling, and then it sort of whips us back. At least in my reading, to like the 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 holiness in that object is like electricity. Yeah. It's like like you can't you can't just treat it like. A, a, an object of the human world. Yeah. Even when your intentions are good. Yeah. So Uza dies. And David gets scared. <laughs>
1: yeah. I mean, I feel bad for poor Uzzah because the ox stumbled and too. he's afraid that the ark's getting ready to fall on the ground. Yeah. So he tries to keep the ark from tumbling and he gets killed for that because he's being careless.
2: And it, you know, and the text says, like, it makes it intentional. God struck him down, yes. not just he died because he touched the right. ark, which is how I sort of translate it in my own yeah. head. Like it, in my mind, I read this as like it's automatic. Like it's yeah. you just you can't interact with with God in that way. But you know, our liturgist Terry said the most interesting thing during the Bible Worm Collaborative that has been. Sitting in my brain ever since then. And she suggested the reason that Uzza gets in trouble, well, gets killed, is that he thought God needed protecting.
1: Mm, yeah.
2: And God does not need us to protect God. Yeah. That's a really different reading. Yeah. But I really like the possibilities. Like the theological possibilities and that, how that could how that could unfold.
1: Yeah, no, I really like that too. I mean, the ark—you were just telling the story of the ark and among the Philistines, and it was like taking care of itself. Like it chopped up their god Dagon, and it gave everybody hemorrhoids and drove itself home. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like God, the ark, uh, fully capable of handling handling itself. Amy, there is a distinct shift in the way that the ark is being moved. Well, first we should talk about the fact that David's like, just stick that in. Uh, He he takes it to Gath actually, which is a Philistine city, which is like the whole problem was that the Philistines Mm -hmm. had the ark a while ago. So David just puts it back there in the house of an ally, presumably, Obed-Edom. And so David seems to be like, let's just stick this thing in the shed this is what mm-hmm. I do with all this stuff in my house that I don't know what to do with. I stick it in the mm-hmm. shed and I hope it'll- With
2: all the dangerous yard tools. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, but it starts like blessing Obed-Edom's house. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. David's like, oh, wait, if, the, if this thing has blessing. I just think that like, David is so, such an interesting character to me in this text. Like, yeah, oh, that thing's scary. Like, let's put it out there. Oh, wait, that thing's blessing. So let's go get let's it. Let's
2: take it out again. Yes. No, I totally- Yeah, he has, he has a naivete- about the way he interacts with God and godliness that I find honestly delightful. Um, You dancing in front of the ark, Like, I mean, he's just, (laughs) it's, um, yeah, I don't know what else to say about it, but he's, he's just responding to whatever is happening right here, right now. And yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: David's fascinating.
1: So the way they move the Ark the second time is quite different. They take six steps. Then David sacrifices an ox and a fatling calf. He's Mm -hmm. wearing a linen priestly vest and dancing. Mm -hmm. And so it sounds like every like six steps, boom, 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 boom. Then they stop and make a sacrifice. Six more steps. All the way from Gath to Jerusalem, which is, I mean, that would take you a minute. Yeah. This seems to me very <laughs> different than the way they were moving it the first time from Abinadab's house. Do you have thoughts about what they're doing here?
2: I mean, they're they're being more cautious in a couple different ways. One is just practically to stop every few steps makes it much less likely that someone's going to accidentally trip, you know? And then, I I mean, I guess I sort of see the inclusion of the sacrifices. I don't, I don't, I don't know if he's, he's trying to sort of like placate is the wrong word, (laughs) (laughs) but like get it, get into God's good graces, like sort of along the way. I don't, the, the sacrificing every six steps seems a little like,
1: that's like a little over the top. Over the top. Yeah. (laughs) But but your observation earlier about how careless they seem to have been, like, throwing the Ark in a wheelbarrow and, like, the things toppling out. Let's and go! This is much more respectful of the power that is conveyed in the Ark and mm-hmm. the recognition that God can, like, God is powerful not to be trifled with. And so, like, to Terry's point, like, God doesn't need to be protected, but also mm-hmm. there is a power to God that needs to be respected. Mm-hmm. And so here, that that's what's happening. They're not just trying to um, protect God from falling over, but they're paying God proper respect. They recognize that God has the power to act for good as, as God has done in Obed-Edom's house or to be really angry and strike people down as God mm-hmm. has done earlier.
2: I love that. And I love also that this is still a joyful procession.
1: Yeah. Very much. You know,
2: David is still dancing before the Lord, and it there's still you know shouts and blasts of the horn. But before it seemed a little more like a chaotic joy. Yeah. And here it's a little more of a. I don't. I don't know what adjective to <laughs> sort of throw on there, but there's there's more. It's it's slower and more careful, and um, yeah. has a little more like cavode, a little more like gravitas, heaviness. Yeah. Yes. Do it. Hey,
1: Amy, as you're talking, one of the things that I'm, like, if you just read that little section that we were just reading, the image of military parade would not come into your head, I don't think. Mm-hmm. We don't get mm-hmm. any mention of soldiers. Mm-hmm. David is dressed in a priestly garment. There's so a sacrifice every six steps. Instead mm-hmm. of this sort of chaotic instrumentation, we've got trumpet blasts. Like, there's just the shouts and trumpet blasts. So one thing one could do with that is to say in the first part of this text, in verses one to five, David is trying to co-opt God into his political regime, right? Like God's power undergirds my power and like, let's do this whole Mm -hmm. military thing. And that has, that careless treatment of God has ended up badly for him. And so now he has changed his whole tone and there is a reverential respect for God. Not a celebration of David's military power. I don't know if I'm that, overreading that, mm, but
2: that's No, but that is fascinating. And that along with the detail that you lifted up, that David is, you know, wearing a linen ephod, but that is a priestly attire. Yeah. And so David is showing up as as a religious servant of God. Um, even though he's not actually a priest, you know, but, but he's, he's sort of taking on that role visibly for people. Yeah. Um, whereas and maybe that is true also of a king or should be true of a king, but that's not necessarily what the people will associate with a king. They'll yeah. associate political power in the yeah. human world. That's, I love that reading. That's fascinating.
1: Then if you go back to verse nine, where David says, how will I ever bring the Lord's chest to me after Uzzah died? And so there seems to be this sense in which David has realized he can't exactly bring God to himself. But then when he's he figures out how to bring God into Jerusalem, but it's it's less about bringing God to me and it's more about accompanying God on the way or mm. some something like that. Mm. You mentioned David's dancing is it like David's dancing gets him in in trouble with Michal, his wife, yeah. right in the next verse after we've stopped reading? It's like it's kind mm-hmm. of a famous um, dancing. Is there anything you want to yeah. say about that in in the context of this conversation?
2: I mean, I think I just like he gets in trouble basically because he's not wearing any underpants and he's spinning around in a skirt. <laughs> yeah. So, so what I will say <laughs> is that he is he is he does not have in his mind what would be a dignified way to comport myself in the ways that one might expect yeah. from political leadership yeah he is he seems to really be in this sort of ecstatic state yeah like a, it, of like religious ecstasy in in which one might forget one is not wearing underpants
1: yeah can you imagine? Remember when Barack Obama got in trouble for wearing a like a tan suit at some like important <laughs> <before the> meeting? <laughs> I mean, and that honestly, was like a big old scandal. Can you imagine like this scandal, you know, like mm. dancing without underpants in front of the Ark? Like Yeah. Things have changed.
2: Things have changed. Things have
1: changed. But maybe but God not.
2: doesn't seem to be upset about it. David's no, wife is upset about, about it.
1: it. Yeah. But. All right. So at the end of this section then. David has moved his capital to Jerusalem, as we were talking about before, and now David has moved successfully, it seems, the ark to Jerusalem in this sort of careful processional with all the sacrifices and the dancing. Yeah. So what you were talking about earlier, this sort of unification of the north and the south, is completed in this really interesting way by the political move of the capital and then by the religious centering. So God and David are sort of on the same team here at the end, in some kind of a way.
2: Seems like it.
1: I go back and forth about David. I think I want to separate out political shrewdness from like yes. religious reverence. Yes. And maybe those aren't actually you, I think separable. Do
2: yeah. I mean, it's.
1: That's funny. David- I'm saying I think it's inseparable, <laughs> and you're saying you've got to separate them.
2: <laughs> well, or if you can't, David, like David is so complicated. Mm -hmm. David is such a complicated character.
1: Where my head is going is one way of reading that is that God will support the king when the king is doing what is right by the people. But God does not tolerate careless political showmanship of the kind that was in that first text. And so there is a right way that that connection is made and there is a troubling way that that connection is made. And we get sort of both of them in this text. All right. The narrative lectionary takes us then into Psalm 150. It's a jump. It's a jump. Has no. Well, I was going to say it has no obvious connection to what we've been talking about, but I mean, it kind of does. It kind of does. So I'm going to read Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise God in his fortress, the sky. Praise God in his mighty acts. Praise God as suits his incredible greatness. Praise God with the blast of the ram's horn. Praise God with lute and lyre. Praise God with drum and dance. Praise God with strings and pipe. Praise God with loud cymbals. Praise God with clashing cymbals. Let every living thing praise the Lord. Praise the Lord.
2: This is one of the Psalms that we sing every Shabbat morning. There are, there are Psalms that you have to do and then Psalms that are optional. (laughs) And this is sort of in that there's like a cascade. I call it, it's like the hallelujah waterfall of Psalm 146 to 150 Mm. that sort of comes all together in the part of the service that we're, we're kind of warming up. Like we're singing and singing and singing until we get to like the full call to prayer for real. And so this is towards the end of that. And it's, it's just really beautiful to have a, and, and you can't hear it in English as well, but, you know, hallelujah, and then it's hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Like every time it says praise mm. him, it's hallelujah. So it it's, it's, it's a beautiful psalm to sing.
1: Amy, I love that. One of the things you've been doing this fall that I really have appreciated is chanting some of our selections for the Patreon community. Mm. So I hope that you might be able to, give us a chanting of all are yeah, part of this I'll do there,
2: there are many settings of this, So, but I'll, I'll do one of them. I'll pick a setting. Yes.
1: What I like about this text being in the narrative lectionary is, I mean, it's very clearly just focused on the praise. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And I mean, I don't know if it's my nature as a rationalist uh, college professor or mm. as a cold hearted, Calvinist (laughs) Presbyterian but the praise is not my first move like I want to I want to ponder things I want to trouble things I want to question things and there's something about this psalm that really draws out I mean obviously the praise of God in the psalm but it also draws out the praise of God in that previous text that we were reading and saying no, Williamson. <laughs> like this is about praise. Praise is important. You gotta, you gotta do that uh, without all the. One of the things I was thinking about this psalm is it's very simple. There's mm-hmm. not the, there's not the complexity that we get in lament psalms or even Thanksgiving songs. It is just yeah. praise, and that simplicity is, is kind of beautiful.
2: Yeah, and I think I mean just speaking personally, I think the music really helps get to that, like for me, helps get me out of, out of my head and out of the complexity and out of like, you can actually put down some of your heavy theological questions and some of your, you know, like some of the various negotiations you might be making over the context of whatever prayer you're offering. And like, just for a moment, kind of like be in your body Mm. and let your body express, you know, there's another Psalm that comes up in our liturgy, Psalm 35, um, I mean, just take part of, but it says, all my bones cry out to you. Like mm. to let your body praise, like wholeheartedly, full throatedly, like just, you know, to sort of be in it. I don't know. For me, like the the music is really the, the key to that.
1: Yeah. I love that. Amy, the verse that's drawing my attention right now is, Verse Mm 6, let every living thing praise the Lord. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm. That
1: phrase is kol Mm haneshama, which is the same word, right, that we saw in Genesis 2, 7, when Mm -hmm. God breathes the breath of life into human beings and arguably into other living creatures as well. And now here's that breath kind of being given back. Yeah, that just I don't, and it's not just human beings. It's like every living thing, or at least every breathing thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Praise the
1: Lord. Mm-hmm. You want to say anything about that? I just, I mean, all I've got to say about it is that's really beautiful, and I love it. It is. I
2: mean, it is. It is really beautiful, and I love, in particular, that you drew the connection back to that creation story, which takes you back to like that the breath that you have came from God in the first place, mm-hmm. you know, so you have that sort of godliness baked into you. And that is precisely the, like the thing in your bones that wants to call back out. Yeah. One of my favorite things to ask little kids during our little, like mini minion services is like, how would a dog praise God? Like what would a dog do that you would say, like, oh, that dog is praising. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and their answer. And, like, how, what about a, a tree? Trees, like, sort of breathe. How, how would a tree, you know? And it's really, it's very interesting to hear their
1: answer. I love that. Can you think of an example?
2: They really run the gamut from, like, a dog could praise God by helping someone, by, like, being a service dog, or by making someone happy and bringing joy into the world, or by eating its bone, because that's what God made yeah. dogs to do. Yeah. Or that's how a dog takes care of itself. Or that's how like it's a really interesting um lens on the question like what what does it look like to what does God really ask of us? No one has said the dog howls, but that would be another very interesting that would be answer. A good one.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah. One of the things that I really like about this psalm is that it's very clear who is the object of the praise, right? Mm -hmm. So praise God, praise God, praise God, praise God. Just when I was, even when I was reading it, like that repetition and then what you're saying, hallelujah, hallelujah, we, we have a tendency to praise all sorts of things. And this Psalm is sort of a reminder that God is the one who is worthy of praise Mm -hmm. and the other things kind of fall to the side. And so when thinking about this, the King and God and, you know, it, it is God who is who is worthy. Oh, the other thing is that um, all who have breath, like we were talking in the beginning of this text about the division in the people. Mm-hmm. And so here, the very last line, we've got this sort of reunification, not just of the people, but of all living things. So these things that we see as dividing us, what reunites us together in this, at least in this psalm, is the is the praise of God. That's the that's sort of the one thing that ought to be evoked in which we are all doing the same thing with one voice together. Mm, yes. Yeah, like the real
2: unity. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are there other things about Psalm 150? This is, by the way, the last psalm in the Psalter. It's the mm-hmm. closing of the collection Mm -hmm. And and the
2: song, you know, David comes to be known as like the great singer of Israel and and the Psalms, generally speaking, are associated with David. I don't think this Psalm has a, some of the Psalms have a particular note at the beginning that attributes it to David. This one does not. I don't see that in here, but I still associate music and song with David
1: just broadly. All right, Amy. So this brings us to the end of kind of a, I mean, it's quite a collection of texts. As you think back on these three texts that we've read today, what are the things that are standing out to you as particularly important for our context?
2: I don't know if this is, (laughs) I don't know if this is the thing that should be standing out to me, but this is what's standing out to me. I think I am, I'm really sort of sitting with the, maybe duality is not the right word, but I'm really sitting with Terry's comment about, you know, God doesn't God doesn't need protection and sort of what that says, like, theologically about what our beliefs are yes. about God. And also, I think there's deep truth in that. And also my experiences of what I would call, like, encounter with God in prayer, that I don't know what to say other than they're not theological. They are electric. Like Mm. they are, it is my, my experience in, in communal prayer is not like a dialogue. It's like an immersion into something big and powerful. And it's much more about my, my body and song and flow. And I don't know if that, I think what I'm trying to get at is like, (laughs) God is complicated and prayer is complicated. Mm. And it's, it's just really interesting for me to try to hold space for for it to be true at the same time that God doesn't need protection and also there is a holiness in God that that is like electricity that is inherently mm-hmm. yes powerful and I almost don't want to try to write those things and like force them to fit into a neat and tidy explanation. I mm-hmm. just want to hold them and say they are they are both true and different ones, different parts of that truth sort of rise up for me at different times, depending whether I'm thinking or whether I'm praying and whether I'm alone or I'm with other people. And I don't know. I think I am I am marveling at the bigness of of the divine generally mm-hmm. speaking and also at, at David's attempts to sort of work with that in in this story and the ways that he does I think it's it's fantastically messy in these stories and I kind of yeah. love that because I think it actually is messy I love that's that all. that's all I got Bobby I don't know that's, I don't know <laughs> no what that was to say. beautiful
1: I love that I don't yeah know what else to say. You capture that side that I have so much struggle with about the like, yeah, the feelings are hard, <laughs> are hard for me. It's kind of funny because like you're you're an I something and then Myers-Briggs, you're a T, aren't you? And I'm an F, but you talk a lot about feelings and I talk a lot about thinking. I'm so curious about that. Are you like an I anyway? Are you an ISTJ I mean, or something like that?
2: I'm like right in the middle of all of them. But yeah, I mean I feel like I have been I've lived most of my life as a as a real thinker and like prayer has become my escape from that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: What what do you see in here, Bobby?
1: Well, in the way that I do, after all that I was saying about like wanting just to experience the electricity and not complicate things. It's just so in my nature. Like, it's my gut. Because well, one of the things, like, I really love that. Um, the emphasis on praise and God being the one to whom praise is directed and the electricity that we can experience and that re- unification with all things and the act of praise and bringing people together. I, all of that is so rich and so beautiful. In this text, there's also a very thin line between the praise of God and the praise of the king. The king Mm -hmm. is very much, I think, I mean, maybe he's an ambivalent figure. I think he genuinely is respecting and praising the God of Israel. I also think he understands the political expediency of being the one who controls praise of God. Mm -hmm. And the, there's such a thin line there. It's not always easy to tell when he's doing which one. Mm-hmm. And so for me, in, the, in my sort of suspicious way, that is also important that the ones who try to control the praise of God often also have a political agenda that they are trying to carry out by way of that praise maybe for the good, but maybe not. And sort of this sort of being cautious about where is praise actually being directed and to what end is praise being employed seems really important. I think in this text, what we were talking about before about the first part of 2 Samuel 6, where David is in the military processional and kind of there's a carelessness about God that results in uh, tragedy, whereas in the second part, there is a reverence toward God and sort of putting God in the front of like processing with God properly and the king sort of falling in behind that. To me, that's very instructive about what's leading the way. Is it the political agenda or is it the genuine praise of a God who does not need to be protected and will not tolerate being manipulated Mm -hmm. and and sorting out for ourselves which one is being done to us. Mm -hmm. And I think for those of us in religious leadership positions, like which one are we doing? Because it's possible to invoke God in all sorts of ways, some Mm -hmm. of which are more palatable to me than others, but nonetheless are still manipulations.
2: That's what I was thinking as you were talking. Is I wonder if David even knows when he's doing which one. Maybe sometimes he knows, but like as a prayer leader, it, it, I think you have to be checking yourself all the time. Yeah. About that.
1: It is. It's a
2: lot of power and um, to be careful with it.
1: Yeah. All right, Amy. Well, as always, I've appreciated this conversation with you. I, I learned so much from talking with you. Next week, we're going to see the whole thing fall apart.
2: <laughs>
1: In First oh, Kings chapter 12. It was 12. so
2: short. It was so short.
1: Yeah. In First Kings chapter 12, 1 to 17 and 25 to 29, which is the story of the kingdom splitting back into north and south after the reign of Solomon. enjoy the unification for a week
2: (laughs) I know enjoy the week
1: (laughs) (laughs) all right baby all right Bobby thank
2: you thank you I'll see you next time okay bye
1: thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm if you've enjoyed this free podcast we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details.
2: Bible Worm is produced and edited by Bobby Williamson. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Many thanks to all of our Patreon supporters for helping make this podcast possible.
1: Join us next time when we'll discuss the dissolution of the Kingdom of Israel in the time of Rehoboam and Jeroboam told in 1 Kings 12, 1-17 and 25-29. Until then, keep on digging.